Good morning, kids. Welcome to Sunday school. I brought my, thank you for that. All right, I brought my water out today. You ever have those mornings where your, your throat just feels a little kind of scratchy or whatever else, and you're like, man, if I don't have water, my voice might crack like Peter Brady at 13 years old, and and like seven of you know that. Like, you know, like that, there's a whole generation's like, Pete, Brady, what? Uh, well, that's okay. So, hey, pop quiz for you this morning right off the bat. I want to know how many of you in this room are one of those people that is outrageously, infectiously, every day, in every way, way in every circumstance, absolutely, totally, and completely faith-filled on every occasion. What is our problem? All right, here's what I mean by this. All right, so I was looking at Second uh, Peter or Second Timothy rather this week, and it says there that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and soundness of mind. And I read that and I go, why then, if that is true, do we tend to struggle with having this outrageous, contagious, unstoppable faithfulness? In the things of life. I mean, it's strange how often we let worry or anxiety or circumstance kind of hijack this sense of faithfulness and we let flooding, kind of, kind of let flooding into the equation. We let fear flood in and kind of get the best of us. And, and as I was thinking about this just personally, just my own exploration of why I do that, um, I came to the conclusion it's because I'm just too practical which is kind of a weird thing, but I think it's true. I think we sometimes just get so practical that we plan more than we pray, or we contemplate more than we kind of cleave to God. We, we see the problems more than we see the God of solution, and so we just kind of fall into that space. And so, therefore, it's Sunday school stories that I love because sometimes they'll push back against that and challenge us to, to really see things differently, to maybe step into a faith we haven't had before, or to be reminded of the faithfulness we're to have even when fears are coming our way. It's not to say that fear isn't real or fear isn't a problem. It's a natural emotion. But to go like, all right, God, how do I really kind of press back against the fears and have greater faithfulness? And so the story today really kind of captures a lot of that. It is the story of Joshua and Jericho. And this story, it's going to have some complexity. We're going to find out why we don't tell the whole story in Sunday school so often, because there's a lot of stuff in there. But I couldn't help but think about even that theme today. This idea of overcoming fearfulness with faith and faithfulness, I go, that has some application even for us currently as a church, certainly for us as a staff. And so I don't know if this week you had a chance to watch a video that I sent out. If not, please go back and try to watch that. At least the first 10 minutes or so will give you a sense of what we're kind of embroiled in right now or facing or, or dealing with and how, again, fear and faith becomes a major player then in this whole thing. But if you listen to the video in any way, uh, you'll notice that we said we have about eight weeks to raise $850,000, which is colossal in number and scope and timeline and everything else. So I'm calling this the 850 and 8 because it's all I got, man. All right, so... But in this, it's kind of like this two-tiered system where the first 550 is to deal with kind of new costs related to the building. The other 300,000 is to pad the budget, which has a lot to do with retaining staff at their salary level. So all of this has this pressure involved, right? 
In other words, it takes a story like today and puts it into real shoes. It's not just theoretical. It's not just, oh, when life is easy, let's talk about faith and fear. No, it's like, hey, man, here's a real thing before us, and we all get to pray in faith, lean in faith, be generous in faith, whatever it is, but this is a good testing ground for us. And so, again, if you didn't watch the video, now you're like, I should go watch that video. Um, But it gives you a sense of kind of where we're at, but also why I love this story. And why it has some even personal application for me, right? Now, also with that said, just as a, a sidebar, like this week, I know a lot of you are on LinkedIn, right? And you're gonna be like, why is Matt suddenly following me on LinkedIn? He has a LinkedIn profile out of nowhere, right? And it's just like, hey, we all have to be prepared for the fact that no matter what, we're staying here at Redemption. We love Redemption. But if we have to get little side gigs to make that happen, we will do that. Because you know what? We love this church. We believe in what God is doing. And we just want to be wise and thoughtful as we move forward prayerfully and faithfully. And so if suddenly you're like, hey, there's Matt on LinkedIn. Why? That's why, All right? But I'm here. We're staying. And God is good, and God is on the move. And I have no doubt that God has some stuff for us even today in this story. And so just in the spirit of transparency, it's all there. And in the spirit of faithfulness, we are going to dive in today. So we do have an app. In the app, there are notes that you can follow along with. Good stuff. Tons of notes today. You're going to be like, oh, my goodness, how are we going to do this in 40 minutes? Probably we're not. All right, so... But I'm going to do my best. So we're going to pray. We're going to jump right in and get underway. Let's do it together. Jesus, I thank you that you are faithful. I thank you that so often you want to use real life stuff to move us ahead. I mean, we love to grow when it's simple, but you grow us when it's hard. We love to grow when it's just theoretical. You love to refine us when it's practical. And so I know that many of us are going through different things in life today that require faith and faithfulness to push against fear and fret. And I pray that you teach us that today and that your spirit will in fact do what it is you promised, which is you've not given us the spirit of fear, but a power and love and soundness of mind and that we would live that out for you. And so Jesus, we love you, we thank you, we praise you, and we need you in your good and awesome name. Amen. All right? So... Josh won the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Josh won the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. And then there's more to the story we won't talk about. So we're going to do it today. All right, we're going to talk about the whole story. And the story starts in the very first chapter of the book of Joshua, and it deals with the ascent of a leader. So before we get to walls that are coming down, we've got to get to this guy who becomes the new leader of Israel. So it starts in verse 1. It says, after the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun. His mother wasn't a nun. He was the son of a nun. All right? And Moses, which sounded bad when I said that out loud. I don't know why. So he was Moses' assistant. Let's move on from there. All right. And he said, Moses, my servant is dead. Therefore, the time has come for you to lead these people, the Israelites, across the Jordan River and into the land that I'm giving them. And so last week, we looked at this story where the Israelites first come to Egypt, and now after centuries, they have left Egypt, and now they're right on the precipice of going back to their homeland, right? And Moses has now passed, and the mantle now passes to this new individual, who is Joshua. And Joshua is not a religious leader, he's not a priest at all. In fact, if anything, he's been a spy, a soldier, a page, kind of a chief of staff, and now he has this executive job for this migrant group of people coming into their old homeland. And they're getting ready to become a nation state, and the responsibility is for him to do this whole thing. And so he's kind of an interesting guy. He's like one part 007, and one part Sergeant York, and one part like George Washington, but with a yarmulke. He's really cool, right? But we also see his character 
and, and when we go back and look at the story up to this point, we see he was a man who was optimistic. In fact, there was a time like years and years earlier, decades earlier, uh, that he was sent into the land as one of 12 spies, and he was one of the only ones that came back, one of two that were like, we can do this, we can take it. Everybody's like, no, we can't. And he kind of gets trumped in that, but he's optimistic. We see in the book of Numbers that he is spirit-filled, and we see in Deuteronomy that he is wise. So he's all those things. And so in that sense, God's like, you're the successor to Moses, but you're not going to do what Moses did. See, Moses was the rod of God. He was the liberator from Egypt. And Joshua here is going to be more the spear of God. He's going to be a general engaged in a type of military campaign. Because of this, he will have problems. Real-life, practical, emotional, messy, painful problems. He won't have the luxury of the priests who say, all right, we just got to keep kind of the legal code and keep the ritual system, and we can debate philosophy and theology all day. No, he's going to have like command-level problems, high-stakes situations that he has to make decisions about. So there's going to be plenty of room there for, for worry and stress as a leader, right? Because he's, he's got literally just an entire population, a nation of people that are looking to him to say, where are we going? How are we getting there? What's it going to look like? It's from this that there's this opening speech from God. It's the central truth that a leader must know. And I'm going to say it's the central truth that we all must know. It's not just for leaders in the Old Testament or for leaders in companies or cultures today. It's for every one of us. If we represent Christ, we have a leadership responsibility in our world, right? We bring that to the table. And so this is what God tells our central figure here. He says, no one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. Why? For I will be with you as I was with Moses, and I will not fail you or abandon you. Now, that's an easy thing to affirm on paper. It's a hard thing to believe in practice, right? When life is hard and pressured to remember, hey, if God is for me, who can be against me? Like, to really be in that space internally and emotionally in stressful times, it's a hard thing to do. But that's what he's telling him. He's like, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, I'm with you, I won't fail you, I won't abandon you. Stamp it guaranteed, right? Just put it as a crest in your heart. That is what I'm going to do. But the key is to really believe that. Not just believe in. That's the thing I, I, I've teased out before here. It's easy to say, I believe in the Bible. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in miracles. I believe in whatever. But it's another thing when you just really say, no, I'm going to believe this. I'm staking my claim in this, especially when it's pressured, especially when it's tough, especially when life is up against the wall, right? Because it's in those times when it's tough that people go like, where is God, right? In the pain, the suffering, the challenge, well, we learned the answer last week in our story. God is always in the mess. God is with you in the mess. God is in the chaos, and he's going to do something with the chaos that refines us and grows us and strengthens us and showcases his faithfulness and his storytelling and his plan. Right? That's where God loves to sit. But in this, then, he reminds our man here of what's so important for him to pursue the deepest pursuit he must have. He says, be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then you will be successful in everything that you do. Study this book of instruction. It must have been like an early version of the law. 
He says, study that. Meditate on it day and night, and you will be sure in doing this to obey everything that is written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all that you do. See, I love this because of all the places to start with all the real-life problems that this dude is going to face. God's like, I want you to do this right here. I want you to be a person who dwells in the wisdom of my words. Right? More than a military strategy, more than learning hand-to-hand combat, more than understanding the topography of the environment and the soil conditions and all the stuff that you want to figure out. Man, I want you to be a person of the book. And I think there's a reason for this. I think in my own world, I think about this. When you're immersed in God's truths, it confronts our sin and selfishness. It informs our mind and our heart. It feeds the soul. It strengthens the the sense of internal resolve. It stiffens the spine, if you will. In fact, I know for me, there are certain uniquely rough days where then I go to bed, and I already know in going to bed, my brain's going to spin up. Right? And I'm going to start thinking about all the problems. And on some of those particularly hard days going into those nights, I will grab my phone, turn on my Bible app, and just hit play because you can listen to the audio and just listen to like the book of Psalms or maybe Proverbs or maybe the Gospels. Right? And just like, okay, I got to keep myself centered on what matters most. Now, what I also love about this is that the prescription God gives is like a one two punch. He says, you be careful to do what I want you to do. That's your job. And he says, and then from that, only then will I bring prosperity and blessing, which is then my job. That's what he's saying to him. Like, Joshua, here's the thing. You do your calling, and I will fulfill my promises. Now, what I think is interesting is I, again, think about this and try to unpack it practically. I find that we're tempted to do the opposite. Right? We're more tempted to say, oh, when my back's against the wall, I need to pursue success and prosperity, sometimes at the cost of obeying and doing what God wants me to do. Or I take what God wants me to do, and I shelve it because i got to focus more on prosperity and success, and hear the stories like flipping it. No, you want prosperity and success, then focus on obeying and doing, and the other one comes into play. You do your part, and God promises he will do his part. Just focus on what he wants you to do and where he wants you to go. Now, as a little aside to that, I will warn that that's, this doesn't then guarantee that what you see as the outcome is going to be the outcome God has for you, right? When he says, I want you to obey and do and start moving, he may have a plan for you or a plan for me or a plan for us or a plan for our world or whatever it is that's outside of our best vision. Like we go, I want X, and he goes, great, I want Y, but here's the thing. If he wants Y and you go to where Y is, you will be better for it than if you rejected it and rebelled against it. Right? You want to go where he wants to go. He wants to lead, he wants you to follow, and he will bless you for doing that. But in the journey of life, there's going to be some rough patches. Thus, God reminds of the overall focus a leader must have. That was our reading today. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. That's kind of emphatic, right? Like he says it three times. Make it a point. What is it? Be strong, courageous. We get it. He says, and do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, I have a personal belief, and I just want to be clear this is my own personal belief. I'm not even saying you should adopt it. It may even be a wrong belief, right? But my own personal belief is that I find the toughest thing 
for me as a Christian to face and to deal with is not so much, oh, having to face Satan or sin. I don't find this to be my biggest challenge. I think my biggest challenge is to really rely on and trust God and faith. Like, that seems to be the harder ask, right? It's tough sometimes believing his wisdom and his promises, or it's tough trusting his presence and will, obeying his wishes and plans. Especially, especially when he's asking you to do that and it's inconvenient or it's impractical. Or, or honestly, you look at it and you go, it's just downright counterintuitive. The way the world gets business done and the way he wants me to do things are not parallel because Jesus loves upside down and backwards, right? And so sometimes she's like, well, I want you to do this thing. And you're like, but that's not the way we do it here. And he's like, right, that's why I want you to do it that way, to show the world we do it different. But see, this is, again, not to be a strategy for what is practical. It's a strategy for what is blessable. And what is practical and what is blessable sometimes are different things. But I love the one-two punch again in this section. Be strong and very courageous. Don't just like it, esteem it, want to do a Bible study on it. No, he's like, no, go and do that. Go be strong and courageous. And then on top of that, the second part of the punch, and don't be afraid or discouraged. Now again, fear is natural, fear is emotional, fear is a part of our fight or flight response, so it comes easy. It's counterintuitive to have faith in the midst of fear, and so you need to be like actively doing things that help foster faith and kind of suppress uh, fear. Things like praying and obeying and moving in faith and wrestling fear to the ground. And so for Joshua, God's kind of had all this discussion with him and he's ready to now move forward. He's got kind of the rallying cry in his heart. And so from that, he rallies the guys, he musters supplies, and he sends a couple of spies into the land. And again, years earlier, he was a group, a, a part of a group of spies that all went in, came back, said, no, we can't do it. He's like, you guys are lame, we can. And they're like, no, we can't. And from that, they wandered, right? For like 40 years. Because they failed in faith and faithfulness, they let fear grab them. They let doubt and looking at all the conditions and the circumstance override God's promises. And so they went nowhere. But this time he's like, oh, we're not going to do the same way. I'm not sending 12 this time because that's a committee. I'm sending two. That's cleaner. And so in chapter 2 it says, So the two men set out, these spies, and they came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed that night. See, I, I laugh at this a little bit because I go, these guys finally came home, right, to their wives. Like, oh, well, how did the spy thing go? Good, where did you stay? <laughs> Found this Airbnb, <laughs> you know? Like, who ran it? Eh, hooker, you know? Like, like how, do you, how do you explain that to your wives? And like, you stayed the, like, there's, this just seems crazy. And then, how do we tell kids about this in Sunday school? And then they went to Rahab the prostitute's house and like little Johnny's like, Miss Dana, what's a prostitute? They're kind of like a masseuse, I guess. It's adult daycare you know, you know those costumes mommy closes your eyes at at the costume store at halloween when we go down that one aisle? that's she's like that you know i don't know what we tell their kids but they end up at her house but someone told the king of jericho some israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land now here's why i laugh about that clearly not masters of disguise or stealth right first day into town they, their cover's blown I don't know if they're being so like like 
courageous and unafraid and bold. They're like, that's right, Israelite spies here. Yamaka gives it away. Like, I don't know how they get ratted out so quick, but they do. And so the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come to your house uh, because they've come here to spy out our whole land. So they're instantly on it. And so like, I don't know, Jericho PD like comes to the door and knocks. You know, and then she sends them on a wild Jew chase. Like, they're here and there and maybe out the door and out in the gate and go look and find them and everything else. And so they go and they look. And meanwhile, the spies are up on her roof. And so while they're looking, she goes to them and she says, I know. The Lord has given you this land, right? And we are all afraid of you. Everyone in this land is living in terror. For we have heard about how the Lord made a path, a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. So for 40 years, these people have been waiting like a time bomb waiting to detonate. We heard about this and now you're here. No wonder our hearts have melted with fear. For your Lord God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. So give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all the family. She's leaning way over the plate on this. Like, and my extended relatives and cousins and my brother's nephews and, you know, all big groups she wants to rescue. She says, we offer you our own lives as a guarantee for your safety. And so the spies agree. If you don't betray us, we will keep our promise and be kind to you when the Lord gives us this land. Now a little off the beaten path snippet here. Um, this part of the story is like really cool within the story, but it also creates some theological and moral complication when you think about it a little bit, when you then port it into the New Testament. Because Rahab actually comes up a few different times when we get to that part of the Bible. And there we see in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, she's called a woman of faith for rescuing the spies. And in James 2, she's called a righteous woman for hiding the spies. Yet technically, what you have here is a sex worker lying to authorities to keep these two dudes safe. And so from kind of the moral framework, we're like, so are lies acceptable? Or is deception, that's faithfulness, that's righteousness. Technically, according to the law, this is a sinning sinner engaged in sin. That's what she's doing. What I love about this is that in God's economy, God looks at things a little differently than maybe we would from the outside. And he's looking at her heart and her motivations. Because her lie puts her at risk. If she gets caught in the lie, she's dead. Her family's dead. So her lie is actually an act of faith. And because she acknowledges that your God is the true God, the big God, the powerful God, the one to fear, that becomes her profession of faith. And so the most unlikely and unlovely person in the region, a cultic prostitute, becomes the first proselyte in the promised land. The first one touched by the saving power of God. And it's not just her, but it's an entire family. So again, she is like this umbrella to all of her kin. And, and probably that was very similar to what she'd been doing with her prostitution. She was using that probably to take care of her family. And now there's this new thing that comes and she's still taking care of her family. She's a giving person. She is. It says, then the two spies came down from the hill country, crossed the Jordan River, and reported to Joshua all that had happened to them. The Lord has given us the whole land, for all the people of the land are terrified of us, right? So last time the spies were petrified, this time the spies are amped up, right? They're ready to go. And it's in that space that then they are going to engage in the most unconventional invasion ever in military history. 
Because what they're going to need to do now going forward is to learn some things that God wants not just Joshua to know, but the entire nation to know. The first thing they need to know is that there's a holy God who's leading them. It's not their might and wherewithal and intelligence and strategy that's going to do it. So three days later, the Israelite officers went through the camp giving these instructions to the people. When you see the Levitical priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, move out from your positions and follow them. Since you have never traveled this way before, we will guide you. Stay about a half a mile behind them, keeping a clear distance between you and the Ark. Make sure you don't come any closer. Now, if you're not familiar with what the Ark of the Covenant is, just think Raiders of the Lost Ark and that gold box that melts your face. That's the Ark, right? So Spielberg and Lucas, they nailed it, right? And so it's a wood box covered in gold, has these two cherub angels over the top of the lid, and then inside are the Ten Commandments, the budded staff of Aaron, and a jar of manna, which is the kind of miraculous food that God fed the Israelites through their wanderings in the desert. But the meaning behind this is more potent. The meaning is, just remember, your God goes before you. He is your hero. He is your guide. He is your protection. He is your presence. Always keep him out there in the front. Don't you rush ahead of God or things are going to get bad. What I also love about the box is its paradox to me, right? Because it's both something that's close, but it's also unapproachable. And it's beautiful, but it's terrifying. It's secure, but it's foreboding all at once. It's like this sweet and sour that God has in this particular uh, icon. And what Israel must learn, like we all must learn, is that, man, you just you got to always live life letting God go ahead. Don't race ahead. We want to race ahead. We want to get ahead of God. And God's like, no, let me stay ahead, right? The second thing he wants them to know is that he wants them to know that it's a holy God who opens their opportunities, who really opens the way before them to move forward. He says, give this command to the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant. When you reach the banks of the Jordan River, take a few steps into the river and stop there. And so they do. And as soon as they do, as the feet of the priests hit the water's edge, right, the water about that point began to back up a great distance away at the town called Adam. No relationship, just a coincidence. And the water below that point flowed into the Dead Sea, and the riverbed was dry, and then all the people crossed over near the town of Jericho. So this is kind of like the, the, the Dead Sea 2.0, right? It's just a smaller scale. But it's for the next generation, and I think kind of the lesson there is that every generation needs to be met with some impossible odds so they can watch the God of the impossible make it possible. Like every generation needs to see that because every generation is kind of born in faithfulness, faithful, faithlessness, and God's like, okay, then we're going to work that out of you by putting you in a spot. You can't do it. Your strength can't muster it. Only I can do it, and therefore I'm to be the one that makes it possible. Well, it wasn't just the Israelites that are witness to this. When the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings who lived along the Mediterranean coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan River, right, so that the people of Israel could cross, they lost heart and were paralyzed with fear because of them. And so God has been honored, the people are motivated, the power is shown, the enemies are worried, and now they're poised for practical success. Right? Now it's going to go perfect according to what you plan out. And it's right when you think, okay, we can take it from here, God. The God then cuts into your plans, literally. At that time, the Lord told Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise all the second generation of Israelites. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the entire male population of Israel, not with scalpels, my friends, right? Not with like painkillers. 
It's like, we're going to take a rock, make it sharp, get some water, bite the stick, Johnny. You know, like, that's what they're doing, right? And after that, all the males who had been circumcised, they rested in the camp until they were healed. I'm like, do you think? I get that, right? It's like, we're going to war, boys. Lift your robes. Let's get ready. It's just so weird, right? Also, another thing we don't color in the Sunday school class back in the back. So... And honestly, this is not strategic at all, you know? Like, this is, the, like, this is what you're going to do with your supreme fighting force. You're going to put them down for the count for a while. But here's the thing. Sometimes God cuts into your plans for a deeper spiritual purpose. It says in verse 5, Those who left Egypt had all been circumcised, but none of those born after the exodus during the years in the wilderness had been circumcised. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I've rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. And so from this they celebrated the Passover. And then the very next day, they began to eat the unleavened bread and roasted grain harvested from the land. No man had appeared on that day, and never again did it appear. They were simply eating from the crops of the promised land. Now, and so there's a number of things happening, but really quick, it's just God saying, you know what? I'm still on track. You're no longer under the shame of the previous generation. You are my people. I promise to give you this land, and proof of that is you're eating from the land now. I'm not giving you the special manna anymore. That's the promise that you are going to take this in and over, and this will be your home, right? That's going to be what they understand from all of this. And what you learn is sort of some lessons maybe in this, at least some things that stood out to me, is the first thing is, you know what, being right with God is more important than being on the move for God. Being right with God is more important than simply being on the move for God. The second thing I kind of see here is that sometimes doing it right might be more inconvenient. It might even be uniquely painful in the short run. But when you're doing it with God and for God and God's way, it helps always in the long run. And while even sometimes it's gonna feel like, but this is God's way, is so slow. Can we move faster? What you have to realize is that sometimes God's slow is actually faster than anything you could put together. And so the full camp has been made right with God, and they're now on the move, and they come across a final lesson. And the lesson is that God's, or Israel's God, is not indentured to Israel. It's not as though he's at their beck and call like he's a blank check. It says, when Joshua came near to the town of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword in hand. So Joshua went up to him, and he demanded, Are you a friend or a foe? He says, Neither one. I am the commander of the Lord's army. And and this is just a subtle thing where he's like, You know what? If you stay on God's team, God is your friend, and God is with you, and I am with you. If you lose track of what it is God's calling you to do, you will become his foe because I will be your foe. So again, God is not indentured to you just by being Israel. You still must obey. You still must seek. You must still do right things. And so at this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I am at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? So the commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for this place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did just as he was told. So again, just like Moses decades before, the burning bush, take off your sandals, holy ground, rebooting that, right? It's not going to be how strong and smart you are. It's always going to be about how how loyal and dependent on God you are. All success and all failure rests on that. God is who he is, and he's holy, and you are who you are, and you worship that God of holiness. So Joshua gets this, and so he's now ready to go. He musters the men, and they arrive at Jericho. 
It says, now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. No one was allowed to go out or in, but the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king, and all its strong warriors. And from that, then, I have a strategy. And the strategy, I would say, is an evangelism strategy for Jericho. He says in verse 3, You and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. On the seventh day, you are to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horns. And when you hear the priests give one last blast of the horn, a long, giant one, right? Have all the people shout as loud as, they, as loud as they can, and the walls of the town will collapse, and the people can charge straight into the town. If I was to give this a soundtrack, it would be dum, 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 with emphasis on dumb. Right, This is a dumb strategy on paper. All right, so let me give you a parallel. Uh, do you remember Operation Geronimo where we were able to get bin Laden at his compound? So imagine the Navy brass comes to the Joint Chiefs. They go, we got an idea. We're going to take a SEAL team. They're going to walk in the middle of the day up to the compound. It's going to be like a group of SEALs, and then we're going to have the Navy marching band just behind them. And then they're going to have this box. And in the box, we're going to have the sword of George Washington, mom's apple pie, and the Bill of Rights. It's going to be in the box. And then we're going to have another group of seals behind them. And every day, they're going to go walk around the building. Second day, walk around the building. Third day, walk around. And then on the final day, the band is going to burn, and the walls are going to fall, and everybody's going to go in, and there won't be a single casualty. It's a great plan. The Joint Chiefs would be like, y'all be smoking crack over in the Navy. Let's get the Marines, you know? Like... It would be, it was a, it's a dumb plan. It would have been dumb probably to them if they weren't so front-loaded with, hey, God's got a thing. It's really unconventional. It's different. You better trust him. It's not the way you do warfare, but it's the way God wants you to do this. See, this is an opportunity. A, it's an opportunity for Israel to be like, okay, God said this is the way we're doing it. This is the way we're doing it. But it's also an opportunity for the city. Because there's already been one woman and her whole family that it's converted to the God of Israel because of their presence. And every day they go around that city is every day the city can repent. Every day they go around that city is the day where the city can say, we fear this God so much, how about we trust this God? We know his power. Maybe we should submit our lives to his presence. So it's filled with opportunities. But apparently the city resists in fear and disbelief and so that brings then the justice of the God of Jericho because the God of Jericho is not their deities, it's the God of Israel. So God says, Jericho and everything in it must be completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and the others in her house will be spared for she is protected by our spies. Do not take any, things, any of the things that are set apart for destruction or you yourselves will be completely destroyed and you will bring trouble on the camp of Israel. Everything made from silver, gold, bronze, and iron should be secured by the Lord for it's sacred to him and it must be brought into his treasury. So two key instructions. Protect the prostitute and then take the possessions and make sure they're given to God because if you don't, your blessing will become your curse. And so in the story, they march around one day, each day for six days, and then the seventh day comes, and with that, the annihilation of Jericho. It says, when the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, they shouted as loud as they could, and then suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed, and the Israelites charged straight into the town, and they captured it. They completely destroyed everything in it with their swords, men, women, young, old, cattle, sheep, goats, and donkeys. This is the other part of the story we don't teach in Sunday school. 
right? And the walls came a tumbling down, and then they went in and they killed moms and dads and grandmas and pets. We don't do that, right? I, I don't even know what the hand gestures would be for that song, right? I mean, you read that. Like, sometimes we read the Bible, and it's all rosy and easy, and then we read that, and we're like, I don't know what to do with that. No wonder we don't teach it to the children to traumatize them. And, and honestly, when we read this, it traumatizes us. We go, oh, I don't know how to reconcile that. And, you know, I would love to get up here today and say, I got the solution. I don't. You guys know I'm always really transparent with you. It's in the Bible. I'm not debating that. I'm just saying I confess that sometimes I really struggle with these kinds of things where I read it and I go, oh, I don't know what to do with that. Like, I get the soldiers. I get maybe those who would be resistant and fighting, but I'm um, kids and babies and pets. and Like, I, I don't know what to do with all of that. I've tried to reconcile it. I just go, hey, I, I don't fully understand it, right? It's that thing that I will probably always wrestle with. But what I did kind of do looking at this this week, and I said, I thought, how interesting in juxtaposition to another event where in this event, you know, we see this kind of barbaric thing. Uh, but then I think about how when God comes in his most unfiltered, most clear displaying way in the person of Jesus, in that space, he's like, I will be the one that is slaughtered. I won't do the slaughtering. I will be the one that's like a temple that is destroyed. I don't do the destroying. And I will give myself away sacrificially and graciously and forgivingly, even though they come to annihilate me. See, I'm confused by the God of Jericho's annihilation. I am sometimes, just on my own humanness. But I am overwhelmed by Calvary's salvation and how God does that. And he does it in the person of Christ. He takes upon his own shoulders that kind of destruction. It's that salvation that is even slightly forecasted in the story. When it says in verse 22, Meanwhile, Joshua said to the two spies, Keep your promise. Go to the prostitute's house and bring her out along with her whole family. Right? So again, the heroic faith of an unlikely hero. But the other thing that's kind of cool as an additive to this story is if you go back into the New Testament again, you go to the Gospel of Matthew, there's an account of the family line of Jesus, and in there there are four women. And one of those women is a pagan prostitute named Rahab from the city of Jericho that somehow by God's grace is rescued and changed and used and goes from being a hooker in a pagan city to the great, 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 great something grandmother of Jesus himself. It's amazing how the grace of God touches the most unlikely of candidates. As for Jericho, the walls are down, the inhabitants are dead, Rahab and her kin are delivered, all the items of God's are up for his dedication, and you go, mission accomplished, right? There is a problematic postscript, and it's the sin at Jericho. Chapter 7, verse 1. But Israel violated the instructions about the things that had been set apart for the Lord, and a man named Achan had stolen some of the things dedicated to the Lord, and so the Lord was very angry with Israel. So they had a whole checklist, right? Be strong and courageous. Check, right? Don't fear or be discouraged. Check. Listen to my word. Check. Follow your God. Check. Don't take anything from the city. Who took something from the city? Missed the checklist. What's crazy is it's one dude. It's one dude. But it's one dude that now his actions affect the entire nation. It's the consequence. Joshua went to some of his men from Jericho to spy out the town of Ai. So the next one coming up. And when they returned, they told Joshua, there's no need for us to go up there with a whole bunch of people, like maybe two or 3,000 at best to attack. 
there are so few of them. Don't make all the people struggle to go up there. So approximately 3,000 warriors were sent and were soundly defeated. They just got a whooping, man. It says the men of Ai, rather, chased the Israelites from the town gate, and they killed about 36 of those who were retreating down the slope. And the Israelites were now paralyzed with fear at this turn of events, and their courage melted away. So the same thing that happened to Jericho now happens to Israel, right? And I think there's a couple of reasons for this. One is I think Israel's a little cocky at this point. Ah, we don't need a bigger bunch of people. We can take this one. Let's go, boys. Maybe they weren't relying on God like they should. But there was also this one dude that did a thing that took God's blessing away. And the craziest part of the 36 who were killed, the dude who did the sinning was not among them. Right? So he watches the carnage and he knows it's on him. Right? So it says, Joshua and the elders of Israel tore their clothing in dismay. They threw dust on their heads and they bowed their face to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening. And then Joshua cried out, Oh, sovereign Lord, why did you bring us across the Jordan River? If you're going to just let it die out here by the Amorites. This sounds so much like the book of Numbers. Why did you take us out of Egypt where we had leeks and slavery? All right. If only we had been content to stay on the other side. Lord, what can I say now that Israel has fled from its enemies? For when the Canaanites and all the other people of the land hear about it, they will surround us and wipe the name of you really off the face of the earth. And then what will happen to the honor of your great name? So Joshua is losing faith. And at this point, God goes like Gandalf on his little pippin' butt, like hits him with a stick, and he says, get up, get up. Why are you lying on your face like this? Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. They've stolen some of the things I commanded to be set apart from me, and not only have they stolen them, but they've lied about it and hidden the things among their own belongings. That's why the Israelites are running from their enemies in defeat. From now on, if you want Israel to really be set apart in a good way, you better clean this mess up, right? Otherwise, there's gonna be a problem. And so again, that impartial angel is doing his job. I'm friend until you're dumb and now I'm foe, right? And so Israel needs to get right with God and they're not right with God and so they need to do some things. And so there's this weeding out effect. We're bringing families before the judgment of Israel and who's the one to blame and finally it lands on this one dude, right? And he takes ownership for his sin. It says, then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, by telling the truth. Make your confession and tell me what you have done. Don't hide it from me. So Achan replied, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. Among the plunder, I saw a beautiful robe from Babylon, 200 silver coins, and a bar of gold that weighed more than a pound. I wanted them so much that I took them. They are hidden in the ground beneath my tent with the silver buried deeper than the rest. My first question is like, Dude, how did you lug that out? Like, just, is there cargo pockets in those robes? I don't know. But the thing that really stuck out to me is how the pattern reminds me of Eden's sin with Eve. I saw, I wanted, I took. Yes, I hid, and ultimately, I sinned. Sadly, the consequence is just as systemic as Eden's consequence, which was the whole human condition. It says, Then Joshua and all the Israelites took Achan, the silver, the robe, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his cattle, donkey, sheep, goats, tent, and everything he had, and they brought it to the valley of Achor. And there Joshua said to Achan, Why have you brought trouble on us? The Lord will now bring trouble on you. And all the Israelites stoned Achan and his family and burned their bodies and piled them in a great heap, or piled a great heap of stones over Achan, which remains to this day. Again, not in the Sunday school story. Right? Just as bad as what happens to Jericho is what happens to one of Israel's own. 
But again, if you kind of extract the lesson, not just the thing that shocks us, but if you extract the lesson, what you have is like Rahab, right? Who is this immoral and pagan outsider who acted in faith and was then blessed by God as an insider and delivered. But then you have Achan who thought he was favored, thought he was an insider, but he acted in a way that was faithless and it produced him being an outsider and brought his destruction. It just comes back to that angel's always saying, the difference between friend and foe is your reliance and trust in what God says and what God does, right? That's always gonna be the story. Now, when it comes to faith, the second lesson I see here at the very end is that faith is more than just I affirm codes or morals or beliefs. It's an investment. It's a holistic investment where you say, I'm 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 gonna bolt this all together and live my life in such a way that really is because God is for me and not against me. And I'm gonna live with courage and belief. I'm not gonna live in faith and defeat. In fact, I find that there are different formulas we all live by in life, and I close with this. I think the first formula that some people live by is literally they live, they're just doing life, but they don't do it with obedience and they don't seek God. So it's life or living, but without seeking and obeying. And, and, and that's just worldliness, right? There are others who they live and, and they also obey, but maybe they don't really seek God out in a deep way. That's just religion. It's not about the relationship, it's about the doing, and it's about the living. There's others who live and they seek, but they don't obey. That's hypocrisy. I love God and I'm living life, but I don't really do what he tells me to do. But what God seeks of all of us is to live plus obey plus seek. That's really the lesson of Joshua and Jericho, right? Live, obey, seek. That's where God meets you. That's where God uses you. That's where God even brings healing to you as you face the challenges of life. Right now, I want to go ahead and have us pray. And as we do, uh, a couple of things. We're going to have communion this morning. It is our communion Sunday. And, and again, just going to that middle part of the story where I thought about the cross of Christ and how it's so unique, even how God gives himself away as opposed to even how we so, so many times see the Old Testament stories. We see the selflessness on God's part in the cross. And, and that's what we remember today in communion, this selfless act to rescue us from our sin. Maybe that leads into the other thing. Maybe there's some of you in the room today or watching online where you're not a follower of Jesus. You're not a Christian, but you go, I, wanna, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be a part of this family in this, this world-changing, upside-down, backwards way of doing life to heal the world. If that's something you desire today, for you it's a prayer where you say, Jesus, I confess my sin. I look to your salvation and grace. I need you to give me life because apart from you, all there is is death. You make that your prayer in your way. He steps into your life brings transformation to your soul, stiffens your spine, and uses you in new and different ways. And if you made that your prayer, we would love to know. You can grab me outside afterward. There's a number that will be on the screen. There's a tile on our app. Just let us know that you made that your prayer today. For the rest of us, Jesus, I pray that as we get ready for this time of communion, and we've just gone through the story that, again, there's all these great notes of inspiration and these these troubling notes of what I do with this, and then there's these reminders of how we are not to be fearful but faith-based. Man, I pray that your spirit would take all of that and for each of us do whatever it is he seeks to do. And we thank you for the grace you show us. We know we are incomplete in our faithfulness. We know that we're very good at fearfulness. And yet you and your grace still love us, still embrace us, still make us your family. We thank you, Jesus, for that and for your goodness. In your name, amen.